Hi, my name is Drea Letamendi, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. Right <laughs> You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. On the Visceral Change Podcast. Hey, how's everybody doing? We are here today with Dr. Drea Letamendi. Drea, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Uh, very much looking forward to our discussion today because I think we're going to give them something very unique, very interesting, and something that I think needs to come back into the forefront of the discussion in terms of mental health and um, you know the ways in which we need to be more cautious and conscious of the ways in which uh, we're serving ourselves and others in this particular topic. Uh, so Drea, you are a couple of things. You're the host of the Arkham Sessions. Uh-huh. You are the associate director of, I have here, mental health training, intervention, and response for residential life at UCLA. And you are also the interim director, is this true still, of Student Resilience Center. <laughs> yes, it is still true. In- interim is such a, um, you know, a transitional word, but yes, it's, <laughs> I am still the interim director of our Student Resilience Center, which is known as RICE. Rise. How, how does somebody find themselves in three, I have to argue, demanding professional positions? That's a great question. I think that it's a number of things that um, might come into play. I am a, a clinical psychologist and I went into higher education with the intention to, to not work necessarily in the more traditional clinical setting at universities. So for instance, many folks are familiar with maybe a campus clinic or an outpatient uh, service center uh, where psychologists and other mental health providers would, uh, would provide services for students. And coming to UCLA, there was an opportunity to work in a more uh, prevention and outreach role to be Yes, a, a psychologist to do some some psychology work and and to to build some connections with students around their mental health, but also to be in the in the field in the forefront, working on training and consultation, working on, working on building some programs and initiatives for other units and offices in in student affairs in particular and in residential life. Uh, first and foremost, when I joined UCLA, I was asked to take on a new role and residential life to address the emerging mental health problems that we often see on campuses and and that are concerning us. Higher levels of anxiety, depression and stress, Mm -hmm. sleep difficulty, and suicidality. So in in providing, I think, a role for somebody who has a scientist practitioner background uh, in psychological science, I think that helps to bring some new ideas and some structure to some pre-existing processes and and our protocols around mental health and crisis response, Um, but also then to be a good liaison to other units. And and that's where uh, I would say there's a more concise answer, which is I was bringing this psychology work to housing and residential life, and that that led to liaison work with other um, units in in student affairs. And so then that, that built upon well, maybe we need uh, somebody to lead the resilience center. Maybe there can be some work in 
uh, consultation and response or threat management. And so some of these other roles started to pick up. And then as you know, there's the personality piece, this professional identity of um, being an overachiever, uh, wanting to really you know, be successful at, at a university like this, um, wanting to be visible and learning of different opportunities to be in those spaces and at the table. Right. And I know this is something that is uh, essential to, um, to women of color when it comes to advancing, that when there are opportunities to be at the table, I think we often want to take those, um, those options. We, we are often eager to say yes and take on those challenges. And I would say that, that then that leads to multiple roles and, and multiple responsibilities. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it has to be probably exhausting on one hand, also equally rewarding on the other. Um, you brought up a, a very good point about the taxation that causes women of color in particular, um, because I know that in the faculty world, at least, when we think about the, the requisites for tenure and promotion, we think about research, teaching, and service. And uh, service, by and large, isn't weighted in the same way that teaching and research is. But that doesn't really benefit a lot of faculty of color, in particular women of color, who spend a lot of their time mentoring other students of color, especially at predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when we think about carrying that burden of paying it forward or making sure uh, other people of color are, are well taken care of, uh, that taxation becomes very real and for little reward at times. And so I'm very excited to get into maybe a little bit more of that as we go on. And we are going to dig into some of these topics you already mentioned and try to flush some of that out for the people. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, podcast. So you are the host of really the, the internationally revered uh, podcast, The Arkham Sessions. And if people haven't checked this out, I implore you to do so right after you watch this, of course. Um, so, Drea, take us through it. Just tell the world, tell us what The Arkham Sessions is. How did it come about? The Arkham Sessions is an in-depth look into psychology and Batman. It's essentially the intersections of psychological science and, and Batman and, and Batman's universe. And I'd add that I didn't necessarily plan to have a podcast about psychology and Batman. I was at the time working on some documentaries and one of the very first, uh, I would say like recognized documentary I did was with Warner brothers. And they asked me to come on to, um, to talk on their, on their film about villains and the nature and motivation of, of villains specific to the Batman universe. And uh, when I was giving responses, most of my explanations and descriptions were about Batman, the animated series. So mm -hmm. my husband, um, you know, then at the time we were dating, but my now husband said like, there's a lot of psychology there and there's a lot that you have to say. You're often talking about Batman and psychology. And it, we came together with this plan. Okay. If he's, the host that does the kind of um, has the perspective of the common fan or the person who's who's maybe in a Batman but doesn't know a lot about psychology. Then I come in as the expert psychologist. Can I, um, you know, can we combine forces? Can we combine our powers to create this discussion, this dialogue about comics and psychology? Uh, and ultimately, we really surprised ourselves in the sense of 
how many topics, how many themes we can lift from a cartoon. Mm. We started with the animated series, which many folks know is a show that aired for a few years starting in 1992. It was one of the first experiences I had with comics um, through, uh, through this uh, 22 minute show. Sure. And it led me to be interested in the psychology of, um, of not just superheroes, but also of villains and of everybody in between, kind of that, mm. that middle ground, uh, the, the interesting concepts of why good people might make bad decisions or, or why, um, why we tend to think of bad, that bad people are bad when they've made bad decisions. So our conversations often led to us talking about very real issues, ranging from psychological trauma to PTSD, to grief and loss, to memory dysfunctions, to relationships, um, to suicide. So there's, there's a lot of stuff there and it's very heavy. And we use the landscape of comics and superheroes to, um, to not just have a starting point and a comfortable one and a safe one, but also to bring people into a conversation, like welcome them into a conversation about things that they may like or may even be obsessed with, may love when it comes mm -hmm. to Batman, and then take them through a journey of understanding themselves, their yeah. own psychology, their own mind, and 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 uh, their relationships. And it's been it's been several years. I think we're going into our seventh year now with with show. It is and it's it's well done. The right the concept of sort of the average fan and the professional having this discussion is really unlike something I had heard prior to that. And it is a wonderful way of exploring probably the, multi, the multifaceted uh, dimensions of such a topic. And, and to choose Batman, I know is a personal love for you as mine as well. But even when I scale back and think objectively at some of the characters, I mean, I can't think of a better universe to have this particular discussion in. Um, when you think off the top of your head and you consider Riddler, you consider Joker, you consider Two-Face, you consider Penguin, you consider Victor's ass. I mean, we can go down and down and down the line, even to some of the uh, lesser known characters. Um, and you ask yourself, wow, I think there's a lot to discuss here. I mean, do you ever find yourself running out of uh, dis you know, topics to discuss? Uh, when it comes to these particular characters? No. <laughs> right, I wouldn't think so. No, there's so much. I, well, you know, I will say there was a natural ending point when we finished the complete animated series. Mm -hmm. So that did lead us to sure. moving to a different show, right? And, and we've done some films. We've done the 89, um, you know, original, uh, well, not original, but the 89 Keaton Batman movie and, mm -hmm. and some other uh, longer features, some animated films, things like that. Mm -hmm. We moved into Doom Patrol, which is a, a, a newer aired show. It's one that is now in season two and it is a very bizarre show. There's a lot of interesting and very serious topics that come up uh, on that show. And, and I think that, I don't know that we'll ever really run out of things to say in the same sense as uh, we, will we ever run out of things to experience when it comes to yes. uh, our, ourselves, our, our world, our society, our relationships. We recently, had decided to take a pause during the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd mm -hmm. and 
really focus more on the climate, the racial tension, the racial violence, and, and where not only where we stood in our journey with anti-racism, but also mm -hmm. to uplift the stories that talk about or present to us the same issues in, in the comics landscape. So we specifically look toward Watchmen, HBO's mm -hmm. show Watchmen, and we- My wife loved that, this, this, yeah, this it's recent a, one fantastic show mm -hmm. and we just covered the first episode and we use that as a launch pad to then um, bring in topics about Juneteenth bring in mm -hmm. topics about masks mask wearing which is um, a very relevant experience for people right now yeah. uh, as well as our um, our personal tensions mm -hmm. with race and our personal experiences mm -hmm. with race so that show although it was very vulnerable for us. And although we brought up issues around our uh, interracial relationship and, and the experience that I have with whiteness, mm -hmm. um, his experience he, that he might have with being in, um, in a, a biracial marriage, that, that comes up on the show. And it's not something that we've really talked about before. But I hope that bringing in those very personal themes will help our listeners feel that they too can talk about some of these topics and, and, and get a little bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that is the goal. And that's a, that's a, a beautiful way to wrap like that idea up. Man. Leaning into discomfort is critical. I know in visceral change, our philosophy, one of our philosophies is that, you know, uh, comfortability is the root of stagnation. Um, and so we encourage everybody to lean into that discomfort, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, especially if the end goal is to grow in one way or the other. Um, I have a question I want to ask you based off what you said, but I might hold it to see if it gets answered as we get going. <laughs> so uh, I want to ask you, right, the DVD you talked about, the Warner Brothers one, was that necessary evil? It was. Okay. I asked because I love, I love telling the story all the time about how I first <laughs> came across you. What's the story? <laughs> well, I, I was in grad school getting my master's degree. And um, I remember stopping off at like Walmart or something like that. And I picked up a couple of DVDs off the bin. And one of them was Necessary Evil. I'm like, this is amazing. I just want to look at it. So I, I, I got it. I went into my room one night. I put it on. And I was like, this is fantastic. This complication between evil and good and you know do superman's enemies exist because superman exists or does superman exist because his enemies exist and how necessary is evil this is amazing so i'm leaning forward i'm into it people pop up and then you pop up and the blue jacket the shirt underneath yeah you know, the hair back. <laughs> and i remember you specifically not for the outfit although the outfit was shocked but i remember that uh Every time you drew a correlation between the characters and an individual's real life, you never once used the pronoun he, ever. It was always she. So when you were drawing the relationship to the average experience, you were saying, so that's why it's important. I'm, 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 right, I'm, I'm just saying what you did not say, but you would say something like, that's why it's important for people to be able to understand in case she wanted to become a superhero herself, or something like that, or see herself as a superhero. Uh, and I, I want to know, Drea, from your perspective, how important is sort of that feminist lens in fantasy and comic books? And why is it important to center gender in such a critical way? 
I appreciate that you noted that. And what I'd say is that often comics is presented to us through a male lens or through um, a male narrative. So we do want to think critically about how the female perspective is presented either on on the page, on the screen, or through the creative process, or both. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that's often missed is the notion that fandom isn't diverse or doesn't include female um, fans, doesn't include female membership. And when we look through history, we know that uh, fandom has included uh, women for for a long time, and that it's it's simply a matter of creating uh, it, it essentially dismantling that disproportionate perspective. Uh, so I do think that it's something that we need to be mindful of. And one thing that I'll say this this happens to be the week of Comic Con. And it's, um, it's great to connect with you during this time because I know that, that this is an event that brings us together. It creates community. It, <laughs> it's, it's such a fun uh, experience. And, and we don't get to have that right now because right. of the pandemic. And what, we, what I do appreciate about Comic-Con um, and what the, what the show is doing is, is it's providing all of its panels virtually and giving folks access to the experience of Comic-Con, of course, in this virtual way, but at least in a way where folks have some, some ability, some experience that, that has a flavor of Comic-Con. Sure. Um, and I think I'm trying to, to recall why I was going there, but I, I, think, I think that often when, um, when we have conversations about comics and superheroes and the dialogue, the, I'm always thinking about who's at the table, who's mm-hmm. in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, if I'm the only female perspective there, I'll do my best to say yes to that opportunity, or I'll ask if there are other uh, female uh, participants who've, who've been asked, or can we extend the table? Can we add a chair to this conversation? Because I know that the default is, has historically been male voices and male perspectives. Sure. And I'll just say being completely transparent and honest with you, Sherard, is that often I am the only female person on yeah. a panel or um, you know, presenting on a certain topic when it comes to uh, comic conventions or when it comes to the dialogue around superheroes and comics. So I, I think it's really important to, um, to be mindful of, of that lens. Now, in terms of story, I think that the the, the horizon is, is really broad and that we've, as far as the, um, the literature goes, as far as the storytelling go, goes, there, there have been many improvements around the identities of superheroes and, and um, certainly creators and writers have done uh, a better job at centering stories uh, you know, across a spectrum sure. of identities and individuals. And you, know, you touch on so much there, Andrea, and, and beautifully too. And- <clears throat> you know, the, the importance of representation and how representation matters, right? It's, we hear it all the time in maybe the workforce or even in the classroom, but the media is equally important. And, you know, we think about how many young folks come across media and movies and uh, comics, fantasy at such a young age, 
and where representation is really telling a huge story. I mean, like you said to yourself at one point in time, do I even belong here? I mean, I'd have to imagine a piece of that comes from the messages you're receiving. So I, I want to dig into that, but we're going we're gonna to come back to that closer to the end um, because I want you to be able to flush that out as, as much as you would like to. For now, let's talk a little bit about UCLA and your, your sort of your newish role uh, in terms of your skill set here. You talked a little bit about how you entered higher ed, but uh, student affairs is a whole different ballgame. Uh, you know, and it's, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it had to have felt like a new world to you. Tell me about yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I, well, I was, um, I had this idea that I would follow the, the traditional journey of a scientist practitioner who, who focuses on clinical psychology. So there are some, what I would call some pa paved pathways there mm -hmm. going into, uh, maybe a, um, a research lab or going into a position where your uh, faculty or you're at an institution or a hospital in in a role as a practitioner or as a researcher or both so so there are some pathways that are that are well understood and and there's a solid curriculum there there is the you know the the clear road I wouldn't say that it's it's not a clear road but I'd say that I didn't know that this kind of job existed when I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. it, is, um, it is a newer position. It is focused on pioneering uh, initiatives and projects that are intended to improve the landscape of um, student well-being. And sure. so it, it means um, trying things out. It means building relationships across uh, offices and across units and departments in a very big institution yeah. we are huge and is um, small. <laughs> it is not small so so just even the concept of um, working toward really big ideas and goals like lowering suicide like um, improving um, depression or or reducing depression um, maybe things like you know the resilience center is really focused on uh, giving students some self-efficacy, like giving, motivating them to build their own toolkits around well-being. Well you can see my cat in the background <laughs> taking a bath. Um, so, so I'd say it's exciting, and it's so. It's, this is my style. Like I'm, you know, I I like to um, uh, to pull up my sleeves, and you know and just get in there and experiment and try and fail and try and fail and, and just kind of be, um, be, I think challenged. I, I think I like to be in, in those environments. And the other thing I like to do, which I may have told you is, is to like it, figure out how I can get at the table, figure out how I can pull up a chair, yes. figure out how I can be visible and present because I do believe that, my voice matters and I do believe that in these landscapes we do need to have um, inclusive discussions. Um, so you mentioned for instance um, mentorships and supervision and relationships and the importance of that kind of development. Mm -hmm. That part I'd say is, is the is the harder part for me. Um, there, there is the hidden curriculum, as, mm -hmm. as my colleague LT calls it. There's a hidden curriculum, and I don't know it. So I think that's the challenge, is how do I find uh, motivating mentors? How do I find, 
how do I find a way to encourage my own work when I know that there are a few like me at the top, top? Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting discouraged by that and it can be very disheartening. It can be um, just, you know, to be honest, it can be disappointing and can stop me in my tracks yeah. when I wonder if I have a space there. I'd be curious to know if you agree with my, my thoughts there in terms of folks being underprepared to deal with such issues and how, how does your role or how do you see your role challenging or ameliorating even some of these experiences for students and staff? I think it does depend on the role and it depends on the training models that housing and res life uh, utilizes. So it probably varies from institution to institution, but generally, yes, there is, I think there is a, um, there is an existing model in student affairs in particular, but also in um, housing and res life that uh, builds upon some themes that are important to community building. Um, belongingness, self-esteem, um, community harmony, uh, identity and development. Those are the strong areas of res life. I agree with you that the issues and concerns around crisis response, suicide related uh, issues and incidents, um, concern, mental health concerns, and gender-based violence, relationship conflict, relationship violence, uh, something that during COVID we, we are noting in the psychology field, uh, a certain impact, a certain increase mm -hmm. because of the strain and stress on mm -hmm. all of us quarantining at home and in our spaces. I'd say that certainly we could augment those skills and we could be, we could do better at improving those particular um, those particular experiences and give tools that can actually um, be practical and be um, I think be utilized in a way where the staff feel competent and confident in 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 their usage of that because I know that those areas that I just named are um, are serious things that challenge our staff that create anxiety and tension that um, people wonder, well, aren't those things supposed to be for our, our CAP staff, our psychology staff? Because of the dynamic of having those separate offices, you sort of create that, um, that illusion, you create that idea that those things can happen separately. But the reality is when you think about housing and res life, that is a 24-7 world, right? So um, when, when people are, are down, when people are having tough times, it's usually uh, middle of the night, you know, weekends. It's round the clock, really. Mm. But but those times that you know we may not have access to um, to to the the staff, the providers, the services that that might be um, might be utilized in in a different way. So I think you're right, and I would agree. How it's implemented and what's needed is more of a challenge and is, is difficult to pioneer because of the lack of um, a solid um, structure, the lack of a manual for this. So we kind of have to build and build and, you know, you're kind of building the tracks as, as you're on the, the vehicle, right? So it's kind of an ongoing process. But a lot is learned from that. And I would say, you know, if I were advising another institution, I'd say, pick it up. Like, mm -hmm. 
put a practitioner, put a, put a scientist practitioner in a role so that you're developing methods of research and assessment, you're building um, crisis response, suicide response models that are evidence-based, that you're talking with staff about these serious issues and that you have someone who can do the consultations so that when pro staff are like, wow, damn, I just intervened, I just, consult, uh, I just had a conflict that was difficult, I need to consult with someone. Um, I just spoke to a staff member today that had a, a really difficult encounter and, um, you know, rattled them. That's mm -hmm. completely normal. These jobs, I often tell RAs and RDs, these jobs are tough. You are encountering, on the day-to-day, -day, you're encountering really difficult and challenging situations. Um, you're often expected to be on the go. You're often expected to pick up and respond in, a, in you know, if you're on duty and, um, and we got to do right by you. We, we've got to equip you and, and give you some, um, some confidence in working in, in those situations. I'd be interested to know, because of the nature of your work and the breadth of your work, have you ever seen particularly any trends or disparities between the various social identities of the world uh, and their relationships to mental health? Are you talking about any... Uh, like the the likelihood, uh, sure. any way to to kind of associate identities with with certain experiences or certain mental health experiences in particular. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, in general, uh, what I'd say and what I often like to stress is that one in four of us, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our socioeconomic status, no matter our, our identities, one in four of us uh, will encounter in our lifetime. Uh, a mental health or alcohol related problem. And when I, when I, the reason I stress that and why I think about that often is when we speak about mental health and wellness, I often try to be inclusive. This is a we conversation. It's not an us versus them. It's not, well, some students, it's not, well, some staff. It is, this is what we encounter and this is what we're experiencing. How can we do better? How can we be healthy? especially now as we're encountering new kinds of stressor, stressors and new feelings like uncertainty and anger and frustration, I think that it's important to, um, to kind of map that on to our, our discussion there um, in general, that mm. um, a lot of us are, are going to be challenged in different ways by the climate, by the pandemic, by our um, quarantine situation, and, and it's probably going to lead to um, a different mental health landscape. So that statistic I just gave is an old statistic. It's mm -hmm. from 2018, 2019. I don't know what 2020 will look like. So right. I do want to start there. Sure. You're right when it comes to the, the different um, kinds of mental health struggles and conditions that, um, that people may encounter based on their experiences. So I would say it's less likely about identity and more about their particular experiences. So, so I'll say more about that. Um, I would say that exposure to racial violence, I would say that exposure to macro and microaggressions, racism uh, is a direct cause of anxiety and stress. It's a direct cause not only of medical, um, medical conditions and, and um, health conditions, but also of mental health mental health conditions. And I think that can be, um, I think that can be understood by many of, of, around why we might expect those experiences. 
um, to lead to mental health problems, considering they are not one or rare experiences, but like very frequent uh, experiences of um, dehumanization, of oppression, of othering. Um, and I think even that description I gave uh, about being invisible, like looking in the mirror, not seeing back, like that experience can lead to feelings of helplessness, can lead to feelings of suicidality, can lead to feelings of despair. So I wanna note that it, it really is about the social experience. And I know I've talked about COVID a few times, but I look at COVID as a social experience. Mm -hmm. Every time we leave our homes, and I'll speak for myself when I say this, but when we leave our homes, we're thinking about our bodies. We're thinking about protecting our bodies. We're covering our bodies with masks. We're, we're hyper aware of our sense of self. We're specifically hyper aware of other people's proximity to us mm -hmm. and how other people might give us this invisible virus, mm -hmm. something that we cannot see. And, and that doesn't happen without consideration of race and identity. I think that that means for folks that are already considering their uh, external features, already ex considering their body and how others see their body, perceive, stereotype their body, it kind of goes along with that. I think that it's important to, to name that. I think it's important to see COVID through a social lens. In Los Angeles County, it is, if you are black or brown, you have two times the likelihood of contracting COVID. Wow. Um, and again, that's not because of identity, that's because of experience. That's because wow. we, have, um, we have lower likelihood of the same quality of care when sure. we go to the hospital. Sure. Um, we have certain types of jobs offered to us that may mean we're exposed more. We may be in denser communities that will increase the likelihood of contracting the virus. And then we have to deal with the narrative that is played out in the media. In the beginning, and I didn't do this research, and, and um, I, I know that, um, that others have talked about these, these different narratives, these research narratives that we're seeing in the media. I'll give one quick example where in the beginning of COVID, it was described in the media that, that um, black people believed they couldn't contract the virus mm -hmm. and that's why they were getting that. sick, right? You heard this. Mm -hmm. uh, then the narrative changed when the research, the data came out to show that actually the, um, the, rates, um, the rates didn't really, the, the behaviors, the beliefs didn't reflect that. That was, a, that was definitely like a rumor. And then rates came out that, well, it's because um, black and brown folks make poor decisions about their diet. They mm -hmm. eat diets and they don't take care of their bodies. And that's why they're getting sick. So again, you know, I share this because the narrative is often the blame on black and brown communities. What we might be doing wrong. The decisions we make are poor. We have poor judgment. We don't take care of our bodies. We don't, we don't have care for our community. And that then leads to getting sick. The reality when we look at the data is that those just those ideas are simply not true. Right. You don't see those 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 actual, you know, those disparities cannot be accounted for by um, by those beliefs. Those are held beliefs that get perpetuated in our media and those stories get told and are reified in certain ways. So so that's one of many examples where when I talk about the 
pandemic and when I consider the ways that pandemic is stressful on us, you know, I really want to reinforce that our pre-existing disparities and the different ways in which race played out is now mapped onto this health pandemic. And we have to consider, we have to consider and correct why these things are happening. I love that, Drea. And I got to come across that quote so I can copy and paste it. So I have it for myself. I will send it to you. I'll send it. <laughs> oh, that. Drea, thank you so much. Um, you know, you've been fantastic. This was a lovely conversation. I felt like we were going back and forth and to, to hear you express your, your side was enriching for me. I know it's going to be lovely for uh, the people watching. So just do us one last favor and tell us how can we get in touch with you? Do you have any materials out? Uh, are you on virtual tour? Any the podcast? Give us how we can how we can reach you. Yeah. So the best place is my website, drdreapsychology.com. And I try to put everything in one place so you can find everything there. If folks want to find me on social media, my Twitter handle is at Arkham Asylum Doc, as is my Instagram handle. And the podcast is The Arkham Sessions, which folks can find on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else that they listen to podcasts. Fantastic, folks. So you have it. Dr. Andrea Latamundi, Gerard Robbins, it's the chopping block on wristrollchange.org.